0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm
1: Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. Then we get into a question of, okay, based on life experience, based on the thoughts that have surfaced to everybody, what, if anything, are you
0: wondering, you know, what kind of questions come to mind? On this week's show, we talk with Laura Shepard and Kaylee Dance about pairing food with art for socially distanced cultural events. We visit a teaching kitchen featuring Japanese food and talk with the chef and owner, Maury Wilhite. And Josephine McRobbie talks with the owners of a sweets shop about how they stay organized. Plus, we catch part two of Harvest Public Media's series on big ag companies influencing university research. That's all just ahead. Stay with us. Thank you for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Renee Reed is back this week with food and farming updates. Hello, Renee.
2: Hello, Kate. Rural counties lost fewer jobs during the pandemic and recovered faster than their urban counterparts. Harvest Public Media's Jonathan All reports on the findings of a study by the U.S. Department of Agriculture.
0: Unemployment in rural areas dropped steadily for 10 years until COVID-19 hit. Elizabeth Dobis is an agricultural economist with the USDA. She says after a spike in April 2020, rural jobless rates went down through the summer of 2021.
3: These rates are
4: still higher than their pre-pandemic values, but they demonstrate greater recovery in rural areas than in urban areas.
5: Dobis says rural counties with persistent
0: poverty had an unemployment rate of 6.7% in July, and the remaining rural counties were at 4.7%. Both of those were more than a point better than their urban counterparts. Jonathan All, Harvest Public Media.
2: The U.S. is on track to admit more agricultural guest workers than ever before, according to the Department of Labor. Most Midwestern states are on a similar trajectory. The influx comes as employers who hire through the H-2A visa program are complaining that it's overly burdensome and expensive. Alexandra Sosa is the executive director of the Farm Worker and Landscaper Advocacy Project based in Illinois. She says those employers would be hard-pressed to find labor locally.
3: It's hard to find workers here in the, who are already in the United States um, willing to do that work because that work is no easy work.
2: Sosa says the rise in the number of ag workers could be due to perceptions that the Biden administration is more welcoming to immigrants or the widespread availability of COVID 19 vaccines. Thanks to Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin and Jonathan All for those reports. For EarthEats, I'm Renee Reed.
0: Thanks, Renee. We'll hear more from Harvest Public Media later in the show as they continue their investigative series on Big Ag's influence on public universities. For Bloomington expats Jason and Nicole Evans-Growth, who started their Raleigh-based bakery and coffee market in 2016, The key to success is only partially about baking tasty treats. The duo, who both have backgrounds in information science, rely on their organizational and user experience
4: skills to help the shop thrive. I'm standing with Nicole Evans-Growth in her sweet shop, Anisette, as she makes her way through rows in a Google um, spreadsheet.
6: Wheat, chocolate chip cookies and contucci, which is a basically the Florentine version of biscotti. These sort of like...
4: She's running me through a production schedule for what she'll be prepping and baking throughout the week. Another spreadsheet serves as a kind of Rolodex of treat recipes. Nicole estimates that she's developed over 80 core recipes over the five years that she's owned her store.
6: Um, But the nice thing about that is always having these things, these numbers in front of me, is I don't have to memorize it, which, you know, I could spend my brain time doing much more interesting things than just memorizing.
4: For Nicole and her co-owner and spouse, Jason, it's this high degree of organization and control that allows them to remain creative and confident in their work. And Nicole, who is a musician as well as a baker, has a metaphor for this. Every once in a while,
6: every once in a while I'll measure something and it just happened to get the precise amount, like on the first try. And I imagine that that's what it feels like to execute a guitar solo with your eyes closed.
4: <laughs> Set is something of a Hoosier home away from home for me. I met Nicole and Jason many years ago in Bloomington, Indiana. We all moved to North Carolina around the same time when Jason and I both got jobs at NC State. Nicole had master's degrees in linguistics and information science from IU, and she'd been teaching in the
6: Kelly School of Business. Um, K-201, the computer in business, teaching fresh-faced freshmen and sophomores uh, spreadsheets and databases and all that good stuff. And so it was doing all that- The
4: move to the Southeast in 2013 marked a new opportunity for Jason, but also Nicole, who loved to cook and bake and talk about food. She was looking for a career change. so he
6: took that job, we moved here to Raleigh, and I had been, I guess we kind of knew that there was some sort of food career was gonna happen eventually. Gosh, how do I describe this? Um, I like to gamble. So, I have no problem sort of forging ahead and hoping for the best.
4: Soon after arriving in Raleigh, Nicole scored a job as confectioner at Vaderi, a local chocolate factory and store. At that time, she didn't exactly have a resume full of restaurant or hospitality experience. My
6: very first job as a 15-year-old was at Long John Silver's. Just little jobs like that throughout college and high school and college. I did some sort of private catering for a while. Catering friends, parties, and but other than that, no. It was more just learning stuff on my own at home. How did you- I asked her how, how she got job? that job. Hmm, charm, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, it's probably obvious that I'd pay really good attention to food. Nicole
4: thrived at Vidari Chocolate Factory. In 2015, her recipe for a strawberry anise ganache even won a coveted Good Food Award for the Southeast. When she decided to branch out with her husband and start her own shop, she was paying tribute to this particular chocolate. So so
6: anisette itself is like a category of liqueurs um, flavored with anise that you find in places like Italy and Turkey. And you see those flavors used in sweets a lot there. And those places were absolutely inspirations for um, you know, the kinds of items that we're making here.
4: As Anna set prepared to open in 2016, Jason used skills that he'd acquired as a librarian to create systems and workflows for the store. He made Google Forms and spreadsheets for opening and closing procedures, inventory tracking, and even coffee extraction math. Nicole also found that her previous career skills were serving
6: her well. The kind of, doing like information science and linguistics type work, that kind of thinking is actually really helpful. I think in terms of like to be able to produce food in a way that you're going to sell a lot to a lot of people. There's a lot of organization that goes behind that. And so I think having the, having the creative desire and drive is one thing, but if you can't be organized and figure out how to get that stuff out. You're, it's
4: you're gonna have a hard time. It's all complex, but Nicole's core desire for the shop has always been simple.
6: We want people to have beautiful food that is not in any way intimidating. We want you to come here and feel welcome. Maybe try something that, I, I don't think that anything that we're doing here is particularly, um, I don't know, innovative or weird or, but we're at times using flavors that maybe aren't traditionally found in an American bakery in cakes or pies or whatever and maybe reimagining, you know, something that traditionally from an American bakery might taste purely like sugar and fluff and making it actually taste like something and presenting that in a way that they don't feel like I don't know that they don't feel intimidated
4: I visited Nicole at Annasett recently where we immediately launched into what right now feels like a mandatory catch-up conversation by which I mean intensely processing your
6: experiences of the pandemic like stuff was happening around us and we were just moving because I you know I was like six months Make sure that pregnant. people follow the rules and make sure you're wearing masks and I, I know what you mean about like not remembering March because I
5: was
6: <laughs> and it was just one thing after the next after the next
4: After all the work to move to a new state, train in a new field, and open a business, Jason and Nicole had settled into a period of stability at Inneset. They were hosting concerts and DJ sets on the back patio, and had even opened a second location. But in March of 2020, there were several small signs that things were changing
6: seems like such a naive story now, but the first thing that happened earlier in that week is that we took away all of the like creamers and such that people would put in their coffee themselves and I think moved all the seating outside and then eventually we thought, well, should we even have people sit outside? So we took all the seating away. Also, we got so busy.
4: Nicole's ability to gamble, to forge ahead, to be organized, to be creative, these were all immediately put to a new test. We suddenly
6: had to figure out how, so I think there was maybe a week of people calling in to place their order. I don't know how we did that. We, I think all of us just sort of flipped a switch and we became robots. I don't know, I don't even really remember it, frankly. But yeah, so, so busy, and then also having to figure out how to get everything now online which of course we have information science background so that was very helpful i can't imagine how people who don't have that background did this and you know switched to an online system
4: over time anaset has adapted to the reality of covid with all pickups taking place in their front parking lot they've been lucky to make it through the worst periods of uncertainty
6: the average sales are considerably higher and we speculate that that has to do with the fact that you can sort of take your time ordering, you can see everything online. The two owners
4: used to spend a lot of time chatting with customers in the store about the day's menu, or maybe just a Donna Summer record that was playing through the speakers. An outdoor pickup model is not conducive to that same kind of lingering. And so they've recreated the vibe online for the time being, with Jason producing weekly and very campy menu videos.
2: Pineapple glaze. Decadent,
0: delicious, and vegan. Apple pie is local apples, a flavorful and sweet crumble, and a perfect flaky crust. A delicious take on the classic. Our quiche this week is potato and goat cheese. Order now, and we'll see you later this week.
4: Now, as restrictions loosen and Anaset's staff is fully vaccinated, they've been able to start looking forward in a meaningful way, instead of just reacting and problem solving. And once the patio reopens and they can host events again, Nicole is looking forward to leaving crisis management mode and getting back to her core mission for
6: Anaset. It's like we're having a giant dinner party. <laughs> so welcoming people in. That's the idea. Making all of these things welcoming and inviting.
0: That story comes to us from producer Josephine McRobbie. Find more on our website, eartheats.org.
5: I think for me, what I didn't expect was actually how many different perspectives there were and how differently people look at art. The pandemic has changed
0: the way many of us experience education, dining, socializing, and culture more broadly, including the visual arts. Here at Indiana University in the Sydney and Lois Eskenazi Museum of Art, Laura Shepper had to find new ways to engage the public with the museum's collection.
1: I'm Laura Shepper. My pronouns are she and her. I serve as the public experiences manager at the Eskenazi Museum of Art, located on the Indiana University Bloomington campus.
0: Her role is to design experiences that facilitate connection between the artworks and the people visiting the museum. Without visitors in the physical space of the museum, Laura faced a challenging situation. She found inspiration in an informal Zoom call between her family and another family, friends of hers, where they cook together for a socially distanced culinary experience. It was so much fun that she thought it might make for an engaging experience with the museum. She enlisted the support of a local foodie and social media influencer, Kaylee Dance.
5: Hi, my name is Kaylee Dance. I am a social media specialist at Indiana University and I'm also a food influencer in the Bloomington community. Together they crafted a series of
0: art and food pairings for monthly Zoom sessions throughout the semester. For each session, they invited someone from the food world to identify an object from the museum's collection, something they felt drawn to from a number of options that Laura shared with them digitally. Next, they would think of a food pairing for the object and would join the food and art pairing Zoom session for a discussion. Participants could see the artwork ahead of time and consider their own food pairings, and possibly even prepare them to enjoy during the session. Laura's expertise is in guiding people towards engaging with art
1: The way it works is that uh, we start with what we call a visual menu, and that menu is an artwork. Typically, in most episodes, we'll look at a single artwork together, and then I facilitate a conversation. So with that, we're asking people to look closely at the artwork, and we start by asking, what do you see? And we ask people to describe, with as much vivid detail as they can, what we're looking at together. So at at that point, we're not talking about memories or other things, we're just strictly talking, noticing the details of what we can see. And it's with any of these conversations, the more people who are contributing, the more perspectives, we each notice different things. Kaylee's eye might be drawn to something different than my eye is drawn to. And the more people who are contributing, we're going to pick out different details, and that's going to lead us to a richer conversation and more ideas in terms of food pairing. After we talk about what we see, the next question that I typically ask is based on your own life experience, based on what we're seeing, what you can see in this image here, what kind of thoughts come to mind? You know, what are you thinking? Once we talk about some of the thoughts and what we're thinking when we're looking at the image, then we get into a question of okay, based on life experience, based on the thoughts that have surfaced for everybody, what, if anything, are you wondering? You know, what kind of questions come to mind? And for there, then that's a natural lead into what kinds of food or beverage might pair with this particular artwork based on, you know, all these ideas that emerged and people's curiosities and, you know, you start wondering one thing leads to another. There's usually by then a vibe or a sense of feelings or different things that might be thoughts and so forth. And then we'll listen to ideas from the community, from participants who are at the table, and then we'll take turns, um, Kaylee and myself and a featured guest, revealing specifically what did each of us choose to pair with this particular artwork.
0: One of the things that appealed to me about the series is that there are no wrong answers when it comes to pairing food with art.
1: I hope that everybody knows there's no (laughs) right answers. I'm not sure if that's true. (laughs) Honestly, um, I really hope that and I, I try hard to communicate that. It would be easy to think, oh, I don't know. Like, I'm not a chef. I don't know how to fancily do a food for an artwork. Or, you know, or maybe you have to replicate the artwork and, you know, <laughs> paint it. Or, you know, I, I, I can envision all kinds of, food <laughs> you know, I hope that people realize that there's no wrong answer and the beauty of it is just expressing and finding a way to connect with it in, in your own life. And when I reached out recently to a curator, she said, oh, the, yes, but it's okay to use it, but there's no connection to food. And I was like, oh, that doesn't have to be, you know. We're going to add the connection to food. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
5: I think for me, what I didn't expect was actually how many different perspectives there were and how differently people look at art. The individuality aspect of it is so cool because People do have different life experiences. Even if there are common denominators between two people, no two people are the exact same. So for me, when I'm sitting here listening to other people share their stories, share their experiences and share their thoughts on these pieces, it's really cool because in a way I'm getting to know, you know, this single person. And for me, it's been really important to amplify my connection with other people. Because again, we are in a pandemic, I can't go see everybody all the time. And one thing that I truly miss, is going out and getting dinner or brunch with my friends. So by doing this series, that's essentially what I'm doing. Everybody who logs on, whether it's 20 people or 40 people, they're all my friends at that point. We're getting to know each other, we're connecting over Zoom, and it's, again, just a reminder that basic human connection is just something that's so important, and I really feel like today we're taking advantage of all that we can in order to keep that connection.
1: I think it's connected on a level beyond what I expected in terms of the the feedback and the messages that I get that people are just really appreciating right now the opportunity to do that.
0: Food can serve as a familiar entry point for people who may not be used to talking about art.
5: A lot of people don't have experience with art, and I was actually one of those people before Laura approached me. Of course, you know, I've been to museums and I've seen art before, but I just kind of had a blind eye to it. I would see these art pieces and I would be like, wow, that's really pretty. But what am I supposed to be feeling what am I supposed to be doing? what am I supposed to be thinking And I had no idea that it was more of this personal connection It's more of well what do you see what do you think that kind of opened up my eyes to the art world Now I walk into museums and I'm like, oh let's stop I really want to stare at the details of this and I always start asking questions with my friends now I'm like, what do you think like the artist was thinking when they painted this color instead of something else And it's so cool because it's just like I have this new lens now and again Again, it is thanks to you. So I'm very <laughs> thankful that you were introduced to me. <laughs> food is
1: universal. We all have experiences with food. It can feel like a safe entry point or something familiar. It may be an easy way to start talking about it. I think a great example would be one of the earlier artworks we looked at with executive chef David Talent. It's a painting of a, a forest stream, And as he talked about that and described what he saw, he had memories of walking across campus in the fall. And for me, I was thinking picnics and other things, but for him, thinking through the fall and the crunchiness of the leaves, and he talked about, for him, there was a seasonality to butternut squash and the local farmers asking him, you know, David, are you ready to start cooking with it? And they've got the squash and it's coming out earlier than he's ready, you know, for, for you know he's not ready for the winter and that that change. And he said, you know, not until the leaves are down, I think it is, that would he start to buy these and use those. So he's bringing you know a really interesting personal connection just by looking that image and starting to describe the leaves on the ground and what he's seeing and the, the the trees and the changes seasons
0: I asked if they could think of any examples of what a guest chef chose as their pairing our featured guest was Candice Boyd
1: Wiley of food love talk she's based in Indianapolis the artwork she selected was titled a study for support there's actually a mural in Cleveland that this artist had made so the Painting that we have is a watercolor painting that where the artist was preparing to make the mural. It is by the artist Darius Stewart. It is a watercolor on a white piece of paper. Most of the painting is in the left half of the image. It's vertically oriented. You can see a woman with slightly darker skin and dark hair, and she is looking downward and gazing downward at a young boy of dark skin. He's got very short hair. He's only visible, I would say, from the neck up. up. Does that sound right? Mm -hmm. They um, are reaching. Toward each other, their eyes are connected. Lovely work. So, I think f- when we started to look at it together and describe, people were starting to see that connection um, between the adult female and the child. And we're thinking about the feelings of connection and safety and belonging and uplifting. We wondered uh, mm-hmm. what was on their minds, what, what, what conversation was happening, what was she saying to him. And then uh, Candace paired it with several foods, actually more than, more than one. It was a beautiful pairing um, that evoked those those feelings of connection. I think she had her bra- braised collard greens. I should have looked at my notes before going She had um, cornbread, too. She had cornbread, mm-hmm. yes, and she had a, a cabbage with johnny cakes. It was so fantastic. Good. There are several recipes I want to go back and, and look
5: at again. I asked Kaylee what she had paired with the artwork. I ended up pairing it with this southern-style country potato chowder, which is something that my mom used to make for me every time I was sick. And it just reminded me, like, the mix between the art and the cold weather outside. I wanted to go home so bad. So I made this uh, chowder kind of just... In her name essentially and for each episode I do take photos of all the food that I had so the image that I had posted was the bowl of soup with a little Polaroid of me and my mom when I was younger almost kind of a little younger than who, the um, boy in the art piece but um, I also had a little handwritten note of the most recent card that she had sent me so it was very sentimental but yes I did have a pairing <laughs> Sometimes
0: the featured guests prepared their food pairing during the session. Maury Wilhite of Katsumi's Teaching Kitchen had selected an ornate ceramic piece of stacked circular boxes as her art object. Then she taught a cooking
5: lesson. She had made um, a bento box. She taught us how to make sushi, actually, on the episode. Such a cool experience. Um, I wrote down her rice recipe almost immediately. I am so excited and so determined to make my own sushi roll one day. We'll be talking with Maury Wilhite later in the
0: episode. Even though meeting as a group for an art and food pairing workshop may still remain out of reach, the museum is now open
5: to visitors and you might have a chance to see some of the artwork in person. I do visit the art museum to see the artworks in real life and I get surprised every time so one of the artworks that we had seen it was so much smaller than what I had expected it was really like this big the base wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yes, yes. and it's so tiny but when I was looking at it I imagined it to be this giant thing and so when I went to the museum it was like a little scavenger hunt I got to see some really cool art along the way while I was trying to find this art piece
1: that's a great point I think seeing that in person I felt the same way as you it was smaller than I expected on that particular um, it's a Japanese vase. I remember so you paired it with mochi, and mm-hmm. I thought that was brilliant. Like not only the colors in it, and like, and like you know, the flavors inside, but also mm-hmm. even just that the roundness size. and the size. Like <laughs> I thought,
5: yeah. it brilliant. I had no idea. I didn't realize right. it was that small. So when I saw it afterwards, I was like, Oh, I, I pretty, I hit that on the head. Like I was like, <sighs> I'm You pretty did it.
1: <laughs> yes, and yes. Yeah, then that one, I we think it may have been it could, it could be used for um, as a vase in a Japanese tea ceremony. So I went over to cup and kettle mm-hmm. and got a tea to go with. I believe Uh it was uh, an orange blossom tea based on some of the coloring in it. And then Eric Shedler from Muddy Fork Bakery paired it with a croissant. With all the, this particular technique was um, where the clay is, is different types of clay are layered together Uh in a very um, intricate way. And so he likened it to the way a croissant is layered with the layers of dough. There's a lot of similarities Uh there. Again, just three interesting directions.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, so he's getting into like the structure of how something's made. Mm -hmm. Right. And Dave Talent was getting into what are the essentials associations of the season. And that's really, that is really interesting. And Maury was talking about how she might use this or how someone in her family might use this object. So Mm -hmm. that is a lot of, that is a lot of really interesting connections. Maybe you can't visit the drawing in person, but maybe you could go looking for that mural. Sure. Sure. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe that's something you'll get to experience in person, and you would know to look for it, and you might get to actually see it. Sure,
1: and then you might have other new connections to it, having been in that conversation together with everybody in the memories. It might mean something different than if you had not had that conversation and walked by on the street.
0: Well, thank you both so much, guys. I had you here for a little longer than expected. So, (laughs) oh no, thank you. Thank you for asking and an an opportunity to, to have this conversation today. Today our guests were Laura Shepper and Kaylee Dance with the Sydney and Lois Eskenazi Museum of Art at Indiana University. Find more about their work at eartheats.org. I'm Kate Young, and you're listening to Earth Eats. Stay tuned for a conversation and recipe with Maury Wilhite of Katsumi's Teaching Kitchen. Kate Young here. You're listening to Earth Eats. One of the featured guests for the Eskenazi Museum's food and art pairings was Maury Wilhite.
3: My name is Maury Wilhite. I am the owner-operator of
0: Katsumi's Teaching Kitchen. Maury has been running the Teaching Kitchen for about six years, but recently moved her business into a storefront on Main Street in downtown Beach Grove on the outskirts of Indianapolis. Mori describes herself as a snob when it comes to Japanese food. She says she gets that from her mother.
3: Not only my mom, my mom's a snob because my grandparents were. One of the earliest, earliest memories I have of cooking is when I was like five or six in Japan, and I was helping my Japanese grandmother cook. And so whenever I get sad, lonely, depressed... As I got older, I always start cooking Japanese food and it just makes me feel happier. Do you remember what
0: she was making?
3: She was busy making uh, whatever dinner it was, but she would have me wear the oversized Japanese apron and cut up something very badly and then make sure everyone knew, oh, Mori helped today, she cut the green onions, you know, stuff like that. So it's just food for, I think, not only me, but everybody, you know, if you have good memories with your family through cooking, you know, all that stuff in the kitchen. That's what it represents most to me. So I'm I was born in sixty three and we were in Japan for a little bit in the late sixties and back then sushi was only eaten for special occasions. Not as frequently as it does now. So for me sushi is like, Oh, you know, something could happen, you know. And uh, but now it's everywhere. And then plus my dad, he's American Samoan. So he's a Polynesian too. So I've been eating Japanese-style food and raw fish since, you know, I can remember. When we moved back to the States, Dad was in the Marine Corps, and Mom, we were in San Diego. You couldn't take the Japanese out of the girl, so Mom started cooking real Japanese food, and her parents, my grandparents, were sending in monthly Japanese rice and soy sauce and seaweed because there's nothing adequate uh, in San Diego. So we ate like that. I learned quickly that just because it's this Japanese restaurant, it doesn't mean you're going to get what you got at home, and so that's why our my sister and I we didn't formally study cooking, of course, but our taste buds were very refined, and as we grow up, as you grow up you know and eventually you have to leave home, that's when I started really learning how to make Japanese food because unless I learned how to make rice, I couldn't wait till Thanksgiving or Christmas when I came back i mean. There's just no way I was gonna give it up when I went to college of course I made friends with Japanese students and we did cookouts there and I would pick up something here and there what's even funnier is I was in the army and as soon as I settled somewhere I had my mom send for my rice cooker she sent it to me <laughs> I had a I had my rice cooker with me in the barracks and you know I make Japanese food because I can't live without it and you know you get bored so you start expanding your
0: menu and She describes herself as more of a teacher than a chef. She has a background as a Japanese language instructor, but she's found that sharing food is a fun way to connect with others around Japanese culture.
3: You know, everyone's happy around food. Everyone's even happier around good food.
0: And running her own cooking school allowed her the flexibility she needed when she was caring for her elderly mother and her child with special needs. She started with what she knew from her family, and then dove into researching Japanese cuisine to fill in the gaps. Because people, you know, people, when they ask you questions, you better know the answer type thing. So,
3: yeah, a lot of it, thank God my mom was the food snob because a lot of the stuff, especially here in the U.S., especially here in Indiana, she would tell me how she would get some of her things. So one time we were having uh, sushi at my mom's house, and then, you know, that tin container I have to put the right the seaweed in? So I picked up my mom's, I opened it, and the seaweed looked molded to me. And my mom's old, so I thought, oh my gosh, she's keeping the molded stuff. I go, mom, you should throw this out, it's probably bad. And she goes, no, you don't understand. And Finally, she confessed, uh, back to traditional Chinese medicine, when you ingest gold, it's good for your joints. So my mom, I knew she had gold-dusted green tea and gold-dusted salt. My mom had gold-dusted seaweed. What the, mom, what is this? Well, she didn't want to share, because it's gold. You know, God forbid, she shared it with her firstborn or something. She shared it with her grandson. She went share. I go, Mom, I don't have to eat this, but you know, okay, thanks for telling me. Like, it's just totally, it's hilarious in retrospect. But she was hiding her gold stuff. Most people invested, but my mom's eating the stuff. So I was like,
6: okay,
0: whatever. Her mom's insistence on high-end Japanese ingredients did come in handy when Maury started her teaching kitchen. She knew where to get all the supplies. In her classes, Mori takes the time to talk about specific ingredients and where to find them locally. And she goes over the different grades of rice and why it's worth paying a bit more for the good stuff, without going overboard, as her mom sometimes did. Mori tells the story of her mom once paying $75 for a bag of the new crop of her favorite rice.
3: You couldn't wait a week, mother, you know, that sort of thing. Because she just misses home, I understand. And I go, next time you buy something like that, don't tell me. I don't want to know.
0: Maury's food and art pairing with the Eskenazi Museum of Art took place on a Saturday afternoon in January. The artwork she chose was a round, stacked porcelain lunchbox lavishly decorated with intricate patterns in shades of orange and red and blue. Laura Shepper and Kaylee Dance led the discussion of the artwork and guided participants to spend time looking at photos of the piece and to share thoughts about associations they made. Maury talked about her first impressions of the piece.
3: What I like about this uh, five-tier bento, it makes you anxious what the food's going to be. I mean, if the outside, if the container is going
0: to be this pretty, what is the food going to be like? Other participants talked about what the piece brought up for them, questions they had, and they speculated on whether the piece was decorative or something that was actually used for food. Laura shared information about the history of the piece, where it came from, and the type of porcelain that was used. Maury talked about the symbolism of the turtle and the crane figures she noticed on the top of the domed lid of the box. And she wondered if it might have been intended as a wedding gift.
3: Symbolically, in Japan, when you go to a Japanese wedding, a traditional, they have the crane as a um, present because uh, cranes are monogamous; they they mate with the same partner for life. And also, there's a turtle on the bottom. Uh, turtles represent ten thousand years of continuation or longevity. So that's why I brought up the wedding. And hopefully, you know, you have a very stable, monogamous relationship 10,000 years or forever. So that's why I brought up.
0: Then Laura shared some background information on bento.
1: A bento itself is a takeout or a home-packed meal of Japanese origin, though it's also in use in other countries as well. So a bento box is a box or a container for that meal. They can range from a mass-produced disposable container to, to lacquerware, so in this case, we're looking at porcelain, where Haley asked the, with the wise question about when might we actually use this? And I think you know, maybe for a very ele- elegant occasion. Just a bit more on bento um, for context. In Japan, bento um, are readily available as takeout in a lot of different places, like a convenience store, a bento shop, a train station, or a store. But it's not just for cat meals. Um, Japanese makers and others with the time and energy to carefully uh, prepare lunch boxes for their spouse, or their kids, or even themselves.
0: The discussion moved to what foods people had paired with the art object. Laura talked about a sesame ginger tofu dish, Kaylee mentioned some Japanese sodas she found at B-Town International Market, and Maury said that she had chosen sushi.
3: The sushi is colorful, the vibrant colors would set off the vibrancy of the food as well.
0: After the food pairing discussion, Mori led the participants through instructions for making a California roll. She talked about the importance of rice in sushi making. Mori makes a point in her sushi instruction of breaking down the origins of the word sushi.
3: That's where the word sushi comes from. Su is vinegar and meshi is rice. So it's supposed to be about the vinegared rice.
0: This was a revelation to me. I always thought that sushi was all about the raw fish. But it made sense to me. I've enjoyed plenty of sushi rolls with no seafood at all, with avocado, cucumber, or even asparagus in the center of that cylinder of sticky white rice cloaked in a sheet of shiny nori. My enjoyment of sushi has so often been about the elegant marriage of all of the flavors and textures. Dipping each piece in soy sauce, topping it with a dab of wasabi, and a sliver of pickled ginger. I always feel so awake and alive after eating sushi. And the few times I have not enjoyed sushi, I will say, it was the rice that ruined it. If you've ever been fooled into thinking a tray of supermarket sushi might be a good idea, you know how disappointing it is to bite into that cold and crumbly rice. So it makes sense to me that Mori starts her instruction with rice. It's at the heart of making good sushi. Mori recommends that her students take photos of the rice bags and other ingredient packaging in her class as a reference for when they go to the international market. They'll know what they're looking for.
3: Great. All of this, the premium short grade, super premium, it's all about the rice for sushi. The high quality rice will make a difference As far as, um, there is actually taste at this level. When you chew the rice, the more you chew, there's the sweetness to it. But more important, aside from the taste, is that uh, stickiness. You want your sushi rice to be just sticky enough so when you mold it, it will hold its shape.
0: Maury walked the participants through an abbreviated set of instructions and demonstrated the assembly of the California roll. Then she placed her cut sushi circles within the context of a bento box meal that she had put together before the session. It was a lovely display of edible art. When I had the chance, weeks after the food and art pairing event, to taste sushi that Mori had made, After hearing about her careful selection and preparation of the rice, I was convinced good rice makes all the difference. Visiting with Maury in her Beech Grove teaching kitchen, I was struck by her generosity. She readily reveals all of her secrets to making the perfect sushi rice or how to build umami flavors for a simple miso soup.
3: Get that umami flavor up, and then I'll strain it in a second.
0: After building a broth base called dashi by slow-simmering water, dried shiitake mushrooms, dried anchovies, and kombu, which is a type of seaweed, Mori is now adding the bonito flakes. They're made from dried, smoked fish that's been shaved into very thin flakes. Straining
3: it all out because you just want the good juices and everything.
0: So the bonito flakes weren't in there very long. Uh uh-uh. They're
3: very thin. So you see that uh, apple juice coloring? That's the dashi. This is a miso paste I use. You want to make sure you that the um, uh, miso paste is well dissolves properly in the ladle. I put some miso paste, and I'm using my chopstick to break it up, dissolve it better. You don't miss any.
0: Chance. So you added some of
3: the broth Correct. to it. Correct. It'll help it to um, dissolve quicker and better. I'm just adding, as I add some, some of the miso paste already goes into it. This will just make it
0: more. Each of these ingredients, the miso, kombu, shiitake, bonito flakes, anchovy, they're all working together to build that fifth taste we refer to as umami. Mm. It's a deep and complex savory flavor.
3: The thing with the miso paste, since they have some microorganisms in there, live ones to help with your lower gut, you don't want to have the water too hot because it'll kill them. I to turn it down some more.
0: So you always add that at the end, right before you serve it? Yes.
3: I know. This is the easy part. The broth is what takes the most time if you're doing it from scratch. Here's some tofu I cut up. The um, green onions, I usually wait to about when I serve it because you know they wilt so quickly and stuff. So in our family, we put a, a little bit of sake in there to enhance the flavor. So dry is better. I'm just gonna eyeball it just a little, like a teaspoon or so, right before, towards the end. Cold days like this, miso soup is best.
0: While I was there, Moy also demonstrated how to make spring rolls, California sushi rolls, as she had done in the art pairing session, and she even showed me how she bakes a cake in her rice cooker. like, I can't believe we
3: flipped that out of the rice cooker, but it's one of those hacks that just turns out. I try to promote, you know, a lot of American girls. I don't wanna just get one appliance to do one thing. Oh no, you can make cake, you can make uh, mac and cheese. I try to introduce other stuff, so oh, And as a good anti-mori, most of my friends, their children go to college. So I buy them a proper rice cooker and I give them a bag of rice. If that's not love, I don't know what is. So they spend the time with me, make their rice, make all these Japanese dishes. So they'll call me and tell me you're hungry. You know, I sent you to college with a bag of rice. (laughs) You know how to make stuff, so.
0: With the COVID-19 pandemic hitting the U.S. just as Katsumi's teaching kitchen had moved to its new location, Mori had to make some adjustments. She started teaching classes over Zoom and even built her own DIY overhead camera mount out of PVC pipe.
3: And all the classes have been easy. Once you buy, you get a, a, the recipe and the shopping list. Okay. And I tell you, call me if you can't find it. Okay. You know, we'll try to get something equal.
0: I tried out one of the Zoom classes with a few friends. We made a Japanese version of pork and cabbage pot stickers. It was fun to connect and to make food together from the comfort of our own kitchens. And even though she wasn't in the room with us, Maury made sure we understood each step, including the tricky steaming and frying technique at the end. The pot stickers were fantastic. You can see photos, find the miso soup recipe, and learn more about Katsumi's teaching kitchen at eartheats.org. In 2013, the largest farmland asset manager in the world made a $5 million gift to the University of Illinois to establish a research center. As part of the Big Ag U series, Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin reports on how the center was founded to study the very area of investment where the company has few rivals and has wandered into controversy.
7: You probably know TIAA as a manager of retirement accounts. It's a huge player in that market.
0: In over 100 years, we've never missed a payment. Guaranteed monthly income for life.
7: And part of that giant investment portfolio is farmland. Because as it turns out, farmland is a really good investment. It's stable and tends to increase in value year to year. And as the saying goes, they're not making any more of it. So farmland is increasingly viewed as a commodity, something to be bought, sold, or rented, and the TIAA Center for Farmland Research housed at the University of Illinois is evidence of that. The $5 million donation that made the think tank possible is the fourth largest corporate gift the university's agriculture department has received in the last 10 years. That's according to data obtained by Harvest Public Media and Investigate Midwest through the Freedom of Information Act. Bruce Sherrick is a professor of farmland economics and the center's director.
5: When people ask me what I do, I say I'm interested in anything that affects farmland values, anything that affects farmland values. Who does that matter to? Anyone who cares about farmland values. He
7: says that's not just the center's benefactor.
5: That's farmers. That's investors. That's input dealers. That's crop insurance people.
7: But some say focusing on farmland as just a commodity puts investors over the communities that rely on the land. Gabrielle McNally leads an initiative at American Farmland Trust that supports women landowners. She says corporate investment in farmland drives up the cost of the land, and that can make it harder for new people to own farmland. And it is, by and large, women and folks of color who kind
1: of make up this sort of the, the new and beginning farmer group.
7: Research also shows that conservation often falls by the wayside on plots of farmland owned by corporations. TIAA has also come under fire for working with a land grabber to acquire some of their Brazilian farmland. That's led some of TIAA's own clients to speak out, like University of Iowa anthropology professor Laura Graham. Her research focuses on indigenous communities in Brazil. Her retirement account, managed by TIAA.
0: And so it's very ironic that my own retirement is supporting something that my research and my work with communities is in direct um, opposition to.
7: So she and other University of Iowa faculty demanded transparency and accountability from the investment giant. TIAA declined comment for this story. Sherrick, head of the TIAA Center for Farmland Research back at the University of Illinois, says that controversy hadn't surfaced yet when the university received the gift. But he says that no-strings-attached corporate gift created a model for universities to dedicate themselves to research in perpetuity.
5: State funding had gone away. Federal funding had gone away. Our extension program, finances have gone com- virtually completely away. So we're substituting for those other sources.
7: Others say this corporate model leaves out rural communities that schools also need to serve.
3: You know, we need to be looking at farm policies which, which would strengthen small-scale farmers and make land more accessible to them.
7: Doug Hertzler is a senior policy analyst with ActionAid USA.
2: People that have a, a worldview that Playing the market is what matters, aren't thinking about the well-being
7: of those rural communities. Hertzler says creating more of these corporate university research partnerships could ultimately hurt those whose livelihoods depend on farmland, farmers. I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest
0: Public Media. This report is part of Big Ag U, an investigative series by Harvest Public Media and Investigate Midwest on corporate influence at public universities across the Midwest. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
2: The EarthEats team includes Ayoban Binder, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Peyton Kenobluck, Josephine McRobbie, Daniela Richardson, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed.
0: Special thanks this week to Jason and Nicole Evans Growth, Kaylee Dance, Laura Shepard, and Maury Wilhite.
2: Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from Toby Foster and from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey.